Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, uh, July the 16th, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. Uh, on Sundays, of course, uh, most of the world sleeps and shuts down, but not Silicon Valley. The circus or charade or farce, whatever <laughs> you want to call it, continues. Um, the latest uh, subject is uh, uh, Elon Musk's battle with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter versus threads. Uh, according to Musk, Zuck is a cuck. Wow. Uh, uh, broadcast on Musk's own platform, which he privatized. Twitter got 34 million and a half views. Uh, not quite as many as I hope this interview will get. Um, but the fast continues, all sorts of news. Sam Bankman-Fried, who is in jail, has asked, uh, well, he's in jail in his parents' home in <laughs> Palo Alto at Stanford Law School, um, was asked the judge to allow close friends to visit. Sam must be lonely. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Holmes, one of Silicon Valley's most outrageous crooks, criminals, um, wants to forget, according to the New York Times, that she was once known as um, Elizabeth Holmes and now only wants to be known as Liz Holmes' mother. She's in jail. Uh, apparently, she was once worth $4.5 billion. She can't even afford to pay the victims of her Theranos scam, $250 a month. Uh, and she managed, probably through her expensive lawyers, uh, <laughs> to get her 11-year prison sentence uh, reduced by a couple of years. You can hear the laughter in the background, uh, which is of my guest today. No need to apologize, Daniel. He's the author of a satirical new novel about living forever in, Sam, uh, in, in the Silicon Valley. Uh, a book called uh, Sucker, and uh, uh, Daniel uh, is joining us, Daniel Hornsby from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Daniel, congratulations on this new satire of living forever, Theranos-like farce, in, um, which has just come out. I wonder, uh, Daniel, though, how do you satirize as a fiction writer? This is your second novel, your first novel, um, Via Negativa. Uh, did extremely well, a, a satire of Roman Catholicism. Um, how do you satire something as absurd as Silicon Valley? How, how can you make stuff up when what actually happens is so absurd, it's hard to make up? I know it's a bit tricky, actually, right? When you think about um, the kind of lack of irony some of these uh, tech CEOs have when they think about themselves or kind of style themselves. Um, you know, for example, like Meta being named from the Neil Stevenson sci-fi novel, um, which is itself, you know, uh, dystopian and satirical. Right. I had um, Neil on the show uh, last yeah, year and uh, he is sort of half amused, half bemused by the way in which his term Meta has been appropriated oh by the Zuckerbergs of the world. And then, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of the, you know, the, the Ian M. Banks um, culture novel series that Elon Musk uses to name his spaceships. I mean, we'll see if they, they have any real success there. 
Um, and those books are about, you know, a kind of uh, utopian future in which like, you know, you can change sex at will, you can live for 400 years, but there's also no private property really. Uh, they're these kind of anarcho-communist futures. So it's like, these guys really can't deal in irony. Um, and it does become a little tricky, you know, I was writing this book, which uh, follows a company called Kenosis, which is you know, loosely based on Theranos. And making up this company, thinking about kind of the regulatory hurdles, I would think of something like especially evil, like uh, testing, working around uh, the FDA and testing implants on monkeys, only to find that Elon Musk had, well, I found out later, you know, that he had done that with rhesus macaques and they had all died. Um, or I would, you know, have people flown to a private island for testing uh, of a new and dangerous drug and then find that uh, Peter Thiel had done that, just that in 2017. Um, and so I looked at some other, you know, I looked at other satires and kind of quirky worlds. Um, one of them being Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49. It's set in San Narciso, an imaginary California city between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And something about the kookiness of that, I think, was a way in for me. Um, and then also adding just the straight up horror elements of this book. Um, there are vampires in it. Um, and so having that backdrop of like actual horror, I think, uh, allows me to play with the language of Silicon Valley. And As it. you say, it's loosely based on the... Theranos uh, farce or the Theranos crime. When did you start writing it? To, to what extent did the writing of it and the actual facts of the Theranos case, how did they parallel each other? Yeah, I started writing it in 2019. So we didn't have all of the same information we have now, obviously. But the John Carrier book, uh, Bad Blood, had already come out. Um, and her, you know, pseudo empire had collapsed by then. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I was surprised with the way it worked out. I mean, did you always know that it was a scam? And was it always obvious to you that she just basically made the whole thing up? I, with Silicon Valley, I mean, maybe this has just been played to death here, but like, I feel like a lot of these um, CEOs and kind of thought leaders sit somewhere on the scammy spectrum, right? Like uh, Elon Musk and Tesla are essentially too big to fail, I think, because of, you know, it's Tesla is considered a blue chip stock, um, though there are a lot of people kind of betting on futures against them all of the time. Um, and so, like, he sits on the same kind of scammy spectrum for me as Elizabeth Holmes. I'm, I, I think I'm just inherently skeptical of these people. Why did you choose um, a female? Of course, as your fictional... Uh... I wouldn't say heroine, but the main character dominated by a woman called uh, uh, famed Harvard dropout and biotech darling Olivia Watts. I mean, um, mm -hmm. of course, Holmes was a crook or is a crook and is now in jail. But most, as you know, most of the crooks and hucksters who run Silicon Valley are male. And there's something very male about it. Why did you choose to, to pick a woman as your main character? Yeah, so my narrator is the scion kind of of like a, a Koch brothers-like family, a, a billionaire industrialist family. And he to get money to fund his uh, punk DIY label who knows nothing about his devious parentage, uh, he, he works for, you know, a Harvard classmate's 
successful biotech startup. And he is appropriately called uh, Chuck Gross, mm-hmm. originally uh, Charles Grosshart Jr. Just exactly. An appropriately gross name. Thank you. Us. Thank you. Um, and I think what's interesting to me is that, uh, you know, obviously Theranos has this direct connection with blood. And I would just joke about my friend. I joke with my friends about, you know, like, oh, Theranos, vampires. I'm going to play with this idea. But then I really saw that parasitism is a good way to think about this kind of stage of the tech life cycle, whether it's, you know, just uh, siren servers and our data being mined without our consent constantly, uh, the actual kind of infiltration of the body that some of these people want to do, whether that's on the genetic level or kind of a mechanical level, uh, the quest for immortality among the super rich, uh, which is very real and strange. Um, and so the more I thought about it, the more I, I, I kind of found that this thinking about vampirism and parasitism was a fruitful way for me to kind of like access this world and, and find a point of entry. And of course, the idea of living forever is something that's not just uh, an absurdist fantasy. We've done shows on it, one with mm-hmm. an entrepreneur called Sergey Young uh, back in 2021. He believes that we can live to 200, and he thinks that's a good thing. Uh, he had a new book out, The Science and Technology of Growing Old. How do you make sense, um, Dan, of this, of this ambition of real people, uh, like Peter Thiel in particular, who's obsessed, of course, with blood transfusion, with living forever? Are they just greedy? Are they not willing to accept that we only get 60 or 80 or 90 years if we're particularly lucky? I mean, I think part of it is that these these people bend reality around them all the time. I mean, it's very tragic, the situation with the submarine uh, a couple of weeks back where you have, but you have some very wealthy men on that sub, right? And I think that they, in some ways, like believe the laws of physics could be bent around them. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, people like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, they've won the lottery of, of the capitalist game. And why would they try to give that up? Right. Uh, you know, they have more money than the GDP of many countries. Um, yeah. So I think for them, it's like they, it, it, I think it's a common obsession among the rich. And you see a lot of old rich people from previous, you know, ages of industry, uh, thinking more in terms of legacy and building libraries or concert halls or, you know, commissioning huge works of art. Uh, but for these guys who, you know, come up on science fiction novels and take them very literally, I think, uh, you know, they, they have this strange hubris and it's, they're caught in a feedback loop with other people who think the same way um, with no one to tell them no or to make fun of them to their face. Yeah, we've had, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Doug Rushkoff's work. He's an old friend. He's been on the show. Many oh, I love, I love him. Yeah, and he was on recently. He has a new, it, the book's actually done very well, um, Survival of the Richest, uh-huh. Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. In an odd way, your book is a, is a fictional complement to Rushkoff's last book. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Rushkoff and uh, you know, would read him and listen to chats with him while writing the book. Um, and he has some really funny anecdotes about, you know, being summoned by billionaires and asked how, you know, they would pay their uh, bodyguards or keep their bodyguards loyal to them in a, a distant dystopian future in which they, you know, reign from their bunkers. 
as I said, your your last book, which did very well, has over 150 uh, very positive reviews on uh, on Amazon. Is via negativa, a, sort of a satire, I guess, in some ways on 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 religion and the church. How different is it satirizing Silicon Valley and big tech from satirizing religion? I know you also have a a master's degree in divinity from Harvard, so uh, you're going to go to hell, Daniel. That's pretty um, uh, yeah, uh, it's guaranteed. Uh, yeah, you know, in the first book, I think it was a a softer exploration of people who've dedicated their lives to uh, forms of re religious experience, and the and how you know, in this case, I think you know, for a generation of people in the United States, but really around the world. Uh, there's a group of people who thought, oh, like they were mystically inclined, a little weird, and they became priests. And throughout their lives, as is the case for my narrator in that book, uh, they find themselves complicit with these kind of bigger institutional evils. And for the second book, I have, you know, my narrator is born directly into that evil, right? He's He stands to inherit, you know, billions of dollars upon the death of his father. Um, he has a trust fund. He has, you know, a vanity punk label he's trying to keep afloat. Um, and he can get a high paying job just by getting lunch with a friend, you know? Um, and so I think in the first book, there's really a, a, the, the main character, the narrator, is sincerely struggling to try to be good and make sense of his life in this institution. And Chuck, the narrator of this book, is Chuck gross. Chuck Gross. Gross. Or should we call him Gross Chuck? There you go. Uh, he is, he kind of knows he's evil. Um, I think he still has some maybe vain, self-serving, vague ambition to be good, whatever that looks like for him. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's kind of, you know, an, an inverse of that first narrator. But both of them have this kind of like monkish devotion to art. Uh, one of them is just ordering, you know, more meals off of DoorDash. And, uh, you know, is complicit maybe with the, the death of, you know, half of the species on Earth. I don't want to defend these people like Chuck Gross, but do you think one of the problems with being so rich in America is because the country imagines or deludes itself on mm -hmm. its egalitarianism and its democratic foundations uh, and the wealthy and the poor dress in the same clothes, speak in the same voices, sometimes even go to the same places to eat and ent entertain themselves, watch the same TV shows, mm -hmm. um, probably don't read the same books because the very rich and the very poor probably don't read books. But um, the, the problem is, is that this country is, for better or worse, a, a highly feudalized place of enormous inequality. And yet the cultural and sociological infrastructure doesn't acknowledge that so right. had a chuck gross been living in the 16th or 17th century he'd wear the the uniform of the aristocracy and live mm -hmm. in a castle and everyone would know their place is yeah. that i wouldn't say it's a problem but is that one of the issues confronting this new uh, trust fund aristocracy in america because we can all satirize them but we all know them too Many, you know, my my kids' friends have uh, many of my kids' friends. Unfortunately, not them, but their <laughs> their friends are, are are incredibly wealthy parents. They don't need to work, and they're they're kind of lost. Yeah, 
I mean, I think you hit at something that is at the heart of my book too, which is there is a kind of uh, refutalizing well, or a feudalizing of American society and vampires fit very nicely into that schema, right? Like if you think about the kind of uh, aristocratic vampires of uh, other novels and, and, and film, right? You have the kind of Gothic castles and the pale rich. Um, and it came out, of course, of Transylvania, which was, if not feudalized, certainly a, a, an inherently aristocratic uh, uh, place of, of peasants and lords. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, finds a real toehold toe in a, a kind of romantic or post-romantic moment in, you know, uh, the rest of the world, you know, in the 19th century and early 20th century. Um, I would say part of the fun for me in writing this book, too, is like Chuck, our narrator, um, he knows the subtle signs and how to see like, oh, other rich people to play the kind of the mind games that he was brought up playing, you know, at the dinner table. Uh, he can kind of scan someone and understand their background kind of sartorially um, and does the kind of power moves of the super rich, which is, you know, going to a fancy restaurant and wearing cut off jean shorts and like a decaying T-shirt. Um, but but yeah. even, you know, even uh, Zuckerberg or, or Musk, they would do that. I mean, if we didn't know That's who they probably. were, they would show up in a restaurant looking as looking as disheveled as, 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 as people right off the street. I wonder, it, it, should we in any way, and I'm not suggesting we should, uh, Daniel, but should we have some sympathy with the Daniel, uh, not with the Daniel, that was, a, <laughs> that was a Freudian era, the Chuck Grosses of the world. Um, you know, the Washington Post loved the book. They called it a caustic satire of obscene wealth. I mean, Chuck Gross is... Damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. It's not his fault he inherited all that wealth. He doesn't know what to do with it. If he gave it all away, people would be satirizing him for his yeah. innocence or his lust for virtue. If he spends it all on himself, we just hate him even more. Right. Is there anything that the Chuck Grosses of the world can do to make us a little bit more sympathetic. Yeah, and you know, Chuck, in this case, he sees himself as a kind of Peggy Guggenheim or Pinanica de Canixwater, uh, trying to, you know, foster and cultivate space for difficult art, in this case, you know, noisy, uh, caustic punk music. Um, and obviously there's a certain parasitism there too. I mean, super rich people have always had this kind of interest in being patrons of the arts, I think, uh, on top of it just being... Oh, are you there? Yeah. Okay, sorry, my uh, monitor just blinked out there. Um, but in addition to it being kind of an, you know, painting kind of coming out of banking, uh, I think there are people who sincerely, you know, want to use their money to help, you know, bring... Should, should we be... Should we admire Bill Gates, for example, who spent half his life ripping the world off and then half his life giving all the money back. I personally don't admire him. Uh, I think, you know, Bill Gates has done a lot of work whitewashing the reputations of the super rich. You think about him and Warren Buffett sitting down at a diner, maybe in Omaha, Nebraska, eating a hamburger. And that's essentially propaganda so that we don't have to see the strange ways in which their money moves through the world. Um, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know what like the kind of moral path would be for if you were born into a family of absolutely obscene wealth, but there are a lot of people who need help 
you know, on this planet. And I think you could put it to good use somehow. Uh, you uh, to, to research this book in part, you came to San Francisco where I live uh, and I'm quoting you. You wrote an interesting piece on Lit Hub recently. After visiting San Francisco mid-draft a year ago, I saw how much the city's map was in flux. Um, what, what does my city tell us about this new world and, and, and what role does it play in, in soccer? Yeah, I mean, it's almost a cliche at this point, but like seeing an encampment in front of City Hall in a place where some of the richest people of all time call home uh, is disgusting. It's terrifying, right? I mean, it, and tragic. Um, and I think we've seen this city that had a kind of vibrant counterculture for so long um, and local culture really collapse and crumble under the influence of an influx of so much money. I went when I was, you know, um, you know, a Bob Dylan obsessed 21 year old, 22 year old and drove from Kansas where I lived at the time with my friend to see San, Fran San Francisco right before Facebook went public. And, you know, that we stayed in a cheap hostel. There were still just some vestiges of like that older city's culture. And when I went back, I was just looking up, okay, where did we stay? What was it like? And the map had totally been rearranged. Totally. I mean, these places are gone. I'm not sure uh, if you've read uh, Fred Turner's work. He teaches at Stanford. He wrote a very influential book from cyberspace to counterculture in which he links the growth of tech with the counterculture of the 60s. So yeah. you're bemoaning no the death of the counterculture, but aren't they bound up with one another? Oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, it's not just, and, and it's not that that counterculture was so pure and great either. Um, but yeah, no, you, you think of places like Esalen, right? That kind of comes out of, and that, you know, for people who don't know, it's you know, near Big Sur. It's a popular retreat spot for uh, tech adjacent thinkers and, and tech people now. Um, but that, you know, that comes directly out of kind of the hippie counterculture and then becomes a bit of a breeding ground for, you know, the ideas that would kind of shape tech now. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the flaws that you see with kind of, uh, we'll just loosely call like hippie thinking, that kind of 60s counterculture stuff that we're all familiar with and maybe bored to death of. Um, lace the groundwork, right? Like uh, a lack of really thinking about focusing on individual pleasure and freedom instead of uh, systemic reform and, you know, yeah, I, so so definitely I'm critical of that. I just think it is kind of sad to see a city that had like its own local culture, you know, become kind of replaced with uh, fancy restaurants and creepy co-working spaces. Yeah, I was struck. You, you wrote an interesting piece, as I said earlier, for Let Hub about um, eight books that help us make sense of uncanny Silicon Valley. And one of the books that you had is one of my favorite, David Lodge's Changing Places. Oh, I love it. Which is a book about the 60s in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, and Morris Sapp, uh, sort of almost <laughs> like a, a, an Elon Musk style academic. Um, yes. Tell me why you think uh, Lodge's Changing Places help us understand today's world uh, tech world of the 2020s. Sure. Well, you know, he has his own little carved out state. So like my book is essentially set in, a, you know, a city made up by pension 
in the crying of lot 49 and kind of picks up where that city would be now uh kind of imagining okay there's another little tech hub between la and san francisco built out of that world um as part of the kind of like parasitism of the uh the project i guess and uh but david lodge you know he has euphoria state which is also kind of chiseled out of california or is a kind of parallel universe california um and he also uh it's really a, a kind of beautiful and kooky version of uh, California in the 60s. He's writing that. I believe that came out in the 70s. Yeah, I wonder if Morissette was around today, he would have gone into tech. He certainly wouldn't have gone into uh, academia. Another book right. you include in, in, in your piece is one that I'm familiar with. We had Ed Young, the Atlantic writer, excellent writer. Amazing. Uh, he has a new book out, An Immense World and a nonfiction world about what we can learn from other creatures uh, other species what, what how, how can ed young make help us make sense of this surreal world we live in uh, Dan? well i mean i think you know part of what tech does is it builds on you know capitalism's like tendency to abstract things right to like well, it's like oh we have this we have the stock market which is this kind of casino of wealth and imaginary wealth um and tech has kind of been built to facilitate that and further abstract our lives and reduce them to transactions. Um, and what's beautiful about Ed Young's book um, is that he shows us, you know, the the realities that hide within uh, or beyond the scope of of what we can see, hear, smell, touch, and feel. And you know that that that, that there's more beyond the kind of like what we even think about as reducible to our experience. Uh, you know, in your apartment or, uh, you know, on your block. Um, and I'm, maybe you can relate to this, but I found that book just like deeply moving. You know, and it's Almost funny perfect. because uh, when Young was on the show, um, and it was a really good show, actually, he talked about what we can learn about empathy from creatures. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's another of the uh, rather absurd uh, goals of Silicon Valley to somehow turn empathy into an algorithm and create right. smart machines that are somehow empathetic. Uh, that's as absurd as anything out here, isn't it, Dan? Oh, yeah, I believe so. I mean, the, the last thing they want you to do is go hang out with your weird neighbors and leave your phone at home. You know, I mean, that's something your buddy Doug Rushkoff would say, too. Um, they, uh, yeah, I, I mean, and that's the thing with the book, too. It's like, you know, tech really wants to kind of get its tendrils around every part of our lives um, and make us do work for them, essentially. Right. I mean, when you are, you know, when you use your phone, it, it's these apps are getting more value out of you than you're getting out of them. The every I mean, you you you're, we had uh, the author of the every on the show. We've we've done uh, the D Dave Eggers also wrote the circle. How do you think and and. Uh, it didn't necessarily meant critically, but there have been so many, so many satires, so many attacks on big tech, you know, beginning with uh, Eggers and many other books as well. What are you saying or doing in Sucker that hasn't been done before? Yeah, I think I wanted to have some of the gothic and horror elements there. And I wanted to spin out and think about the ways in which you know, so my, my narrator is the scion of this ultra rich family and think about the ways in which, you know, tech is part of this longer, older process. Um, I think that 
you know, some of these early tech satires that came out kind of right as the tech CEO became a kind of narrative archetype. Um, I think they find themselves like weirdly enamored with their subjects. Um, and sometimes, I don't know, I, I wanted to maybe dial up the degree and the kookiness and using Pynchon's universe, using mm. some of the horror elements and really thinking about kind of the flows of capital, venture capital, um, and tech is kind of this strange lattice that encircles the earth right now. Um, it was a way in for me and, and a way to see this book in conversation with those other books. Yeah, I mean, all this could have been, as you suggested, made up by Pynchon or by DeLillo as well. 100%. And you'll see if you, you know, the book is full of little nods to Pynchon, uh, Lodge, um, Patricia Highsmith, a few others. You'll see some uh, other parallel universes that kind of overlap. And do this think, book. Uh, yeah, I mean, do you think, uh, speaking of Highsmith, one of my favorite writers. Same. Uh, Ripley would do very well in Silicon Valley. Oh, he, he would kill. He would be one of the richest men on earth, I think. He uh, would be one of the super salesmen. Well, I mean, Elon Musk, I, I, I don't find him to be incredibly intelligent, you know, just in, in, in the, given how much we know about him at this point. And I think his like power is just that he's willing to exploit people and lie. Um, and so Ripley, I, I think Ripley could, you know, He'd have that Bezos level of wealth, I think, at this point. Yeah, and one or two, uh, one or two corpses hidden around the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, in some ways, I mean, the farce of these people wanting to live forever is is their problem because it's obviously never going to happen. Right. Uh, so Peter Thiel can suck as much blood as he wants; he's still going to die like the rest of us. But I wonder whether there are some serious areas where we should be deeply fearful of the continuing power of tech. We did a show. Mm -hmm. uh, last month with Ashley Vance, who wrote the first biography of Musk. He has a new book out, um, When the Heavens yeah. Went on Sale, a book about how the Musks and the Bezoses of the world are trying to colonize space. I'm not sure if you include this in, in Sucker, but is this something that we should be particularly fearful of, turning the, the Silicon Valley model onto the appropriation of space itself and the universe? I I think that, you know, kind of bringing Ed Young back into it too, it's like, I think some of these people deeply wish that they could control the air we breathe, you know, and control the kind of uh, uh, un unquantifiable texture of our experience. And if you were to send us all to space, I mean, we would need, we would need air up there. We would need, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a, that's a world of perfect control, a perfect world of perfect kind of surrender to the power of tech. Right. You can't just p pitch a tent on Mars. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's part of their kind of like strange and underbaked sci fi vision for the future. Um, I'm worried more about, you know, this idea of kind of um, their ethical altruism and, uh, you know, they're they're envisioning as a future space society like Ian and Banks, maybe, but darker and stranger where there'll be thousands of people drizzled among the stars. And so they need to hoard their wealth and facilitate something for that world um, and kind of leave us all in the dust. You what know? do you make of Sam Altman and his supposed altruism, the head of OpenAI? Right, which is not, believes that which is not open, right? Like that's not yeah, which is, I, it could have been invented by you. Um, but yeah. um, his, his ar argument that 
or this AI will eventually free us from work and his support for the guaranteed minimum income. Is there some genuine altruism in that? Or is that also a very dark, depressing um, future? I mean, I think at this point, you know, when we talk about AI, it's essentially a, a kind of black box that shields uh, its owners from accountability, right? Like we're, we're not in possession of a curious thinking machine. Um, essentially, we have a, a kind of incredibly complicated autocomplete. And so, but I think by mystifying AI and treating it like a kind of uh, computer god, then people can be like, no, 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 this... Uh, this defense AI that happened to disproportionately, you know, kill or this uh, sentencing AI or this whatever, you know, it, it frees people, I think, from accountability um, and can propagate some, I think, like really dangerous activity. What other books should we be reading? You had a uh, in your list, you included Uncanny Valley, which is another nonfiction satire, which has done very well. Anna Wiener. But there oh, were some other amazing. books you included, which I, I have to admit I hadn't heard of. A different drummer by William Melvin Kelly. Mm -hmm. um, Future Feeling by Joss Lake. Um, Bliss Montage by Ling Ma. Uh, and then one very curiously titled um, 50 Things Kate Bush Taught Me About the Multiverse. Tell me a little bit about one or two of these books. What, why sure. should we be reading them to make sense of our... Uh, surreal pinchonesque reality yeah you know these books for me just helped me understand uh ways in which like novels create kind of strange parallel worlds right like i think we take we have this uh kind of default to a, a certain especially uh in the, in the united states a certain default to a brand of you know realism that comes out of the 80s and 90s and still dominates the aesthetics of fiction um, and so these books, you know, nonfiction and fiction, there's one, uh, the Kate Bush book by Karina McGlynn is a collection of poems. Uh, they just help kind of like expand my ma imagination and thinking about how can we create uh, other possible worlds for fiction. And um, so, yeah, so for me, I think like in that, they really helped me kind of uh, find a way into writing a zany satire of Silicon Valley where I could be free to make things up and free to kind of reimagine or tilt uh, the world of tech without having to like intimately know San Francisco inside and out. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know, that is like when you mentioned the Ed Young book, you mentioned David Lodge. Like, I think these books do also have that kind of potential to just like, uh, or I think of Ian and Banks, honestly, even though he's a Musk hero, that like reading those books and thinking about uh, what does it look like to have a future without hierarchy? What does it look like to have a future without scarcity? Uh, that thought experiment is, I, you know, I find it moving and strange. Um, and it has helped me kind of navigate my own uh, political leanings. Final question, um, Dan. We live in an age, again, you don't need me to tell you this, where the zeitgeist has swung very defiantly and definitely against tech. Mm -hmm. uh, your book will have a sympathetic audience, I think, of people who already are deeply suspicious 
of the extreme wealth and the implications of technology. How does one write a really daring, dangerous book now about tech? No, I mean, that, that's one of the strange things about writing a book, right, is that, you know, I started this book, I was a waiter at a diner in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in 2019. And so some of this tech fallout, I mean, it was already on its way, right? Like Theranos had happened. Um, I believe the kind of soft bank WeWork uh, collapse was happening. Um, but I don't think it had quite calcified. And I, I still see you know, a lot of tech optimism when I talk to people that like tech is going to save us from ecological disaster, that tech is going to kind of reorganize our economy. Um, and so, you know, I think at this point, what we need are kind of rad radical reimaginings of the world uh, that get away from this thing that, you know, because essentially tech is a tool and that we actually need a change in consciousness. Um, that I think is really deals with systems and you know Americans especially I think are bad about thinking about systems and I think people are increasingly I think more literate in that regard but for the most part you know it's like you mentioned earlier people have this kind of false vision of a meritocracy they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and I think we need to kind of uh, reimagine and have a, some kind of vision for the future here that doesn't just rely on a kind of like ghost in a computer fixing our problems.